So welcome back to another episode of the Palm Beach North podcast brought to you by the Palm Beach North Chamber of Commerce. My name is Noel Martinez, and today we have a very special guest, someone who plays a pivotal role in powering the Sunshine State, Pam Rauch. She's the Vice President of External Affairs and Economic Development for Florida Power and Light. From leading community engagement efforts to pioneering clean energy initiatives, Pam is an absolute force to be reckoned with. She has an impressive track record, including creating over 27,000 net new jobs for Florida and overseeing FPL's ambitious solar panel project, which we're going to hear a little bit about later. Um, today, we're going to drive into a, a da. See, that's where we need to start things over. <laughs> we're going to be diving into a range of topics from smart grids and solar energy to FPL's community involvement and the future of electric vehicles. So let's go ahead and get started. Pam, welcome to the show. Thanks, Noel. So Pam, you have had a, such an impressive career and FPL does so much for the community. So we're going to get to talk about them and your career in a second, but I want our listeners to get to know you a little bit. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your story? Well, I guess I would start by saying I'm a uh, not born, but raised Florida girl, South Florida girl. Um, my parents moved myself and my two sisters to Broward County um, when I was four years old in the, uh, the, the late 60s. And so I've really spent my entire life as a Floridian. And, um, you know, I would say that my parents made, uh, raised us to love to be, to love competition, to love playing games. And to keep us out of trouble, they got us into the game of tennis very early. And so I spent a lot of my growing up years on the tennis court um, for fun, as a, as a way to spend time with family, but also it taught me how to compete. And so uh, when I finally went off to college at the University of North Carolina, um, I had the good fortune of going there to play tennis. So I had tennis as part of my, my college and you were the captain, you won't say this, but you were the captain of the tennis team. Ultimately, right? yeah. my senior year. And um, it was a great experience. It taught me a lot, right, so not just tennis. Not just tennis. Okay. Well, tell us a little bit about your family. So I know you have a brother and sister, correct? I have two younger sisters. Two younger sisters. They would want me to be sure to say younger. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, two younger sisters. And um, we... Um, we all grew up playing tennis. I was the only one that decided to take it further, even though um, they were actually better players than me. They're, were they, huh? Yes, yes. Are you just saying that because they're probably listening to this right now, or are they really better? My than younger you? sister, my middle sister, was top ten in Florida when she when she graduated from high school. Oh. I was, was a little better than me. Oh wow! wow. So, um, so they were good players, but you know, we grew up at a time where it was not quite as organized as sports is today. So, as we were discussing before the show. Um, we did it because it was a great way to spend time with friends. And there was a public tennis facility constructed and all the kids from our community would go there to play tennis. And I would tell you that probably two thirds of those kids went on to play D1 tennis because we just were on the court all the time playing and competing against each other. And it was, it was in a fun way. And most of those kids are still some very close friends today. So, and I think many of them have gone on to have successful livelihoods on lots of learnings from those tennis days, like oh, I had. Amazing. So what about your parents? What were your parents like? So um, my parents were both raised, born and raised in Titusville, Pennsylvania, a very small um, steel and oil town in Northwestern Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, they were raised at a time when the way you get ahead, you work hard, you keep your head down 
And just because you work hard doesn't necessarily mean you can succeed. So, you know, it, it was it was a great way to be raised because you never took anything that came your way for granted. So if you were given an opportunity, um, you know, to go to school, you took it and you did the best you can. If you were offered the opportunity for good work, you took it and you appreciated it. And so I think that was something that my my father and, my, and mother both instilled in all three of us, the work ethic. Amazing. So you, your father was a doctor, is that correct? Yes, he was what? a gastroenterologist and an internist. And, um, you know, he had started his career right outside of Philadelphia. I was born in York, Pennsylvania. And he came home one day after he had been practicing for about seven years. I was, I was three years old. And he said to my mom, if you could move anywhere out of Pennsylvania, where would you want to go? And she had never been to Florida, but she said, I want to move to Florida where it's warm. So they dropped us off at the grandparents and they spent two weeks driving through Florida and they landed in Broward County. We spent a year in Miami so my dad could get board certified in gastroenterology at Jackson. And then we moved to Lighthouse Point in Broward County yeah. um, in the late 60s. And so that's where my parents built kind of their lives. Oh, that's great. Great. So what is something about you that people do not know? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, you know, I think something that maybe other people don't know is I love the holidays. I love all the holidays that we get to celebrate throughout the year. And probably I give that um, credit to my parents. My mom had a way of making holidays such a special time for family. And so um, I think if you ask my boys, I try very hard to make all holidays something that will be special to our family. And so whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year's or Valentine's Day or Easter or Fourth of July, <laughs> um, I am always looking forward to the next holiday. And you mentioned your boys. We didn't talk about your boys. What, uh, what are your boys like? Um, well, I'm their mom, so I think they are completely awesome. <laughs> they're absolutely perfect. <laughs> they are. Um, they're probably rolling their eyes if they hear this. Um, I, but I do. I have two amazing young men. Um, Bronson is my oldest, and he just graduated from University of Florida with a business degree. And he is um, making his way through his first semester of law school at University of Miami. Um, so I'm able to, I'm, huh? I'm able to kind of guide him from my law school experience, which makes me feel good that I can, um, commiserate with him. First semester of law school is a stressful time. Does it bother you that he's in the ACC in the ACC with, with North Carolina, with the Tar Heels? You know, not really. Cause it'll just give us, it'll just give us, you know, an ability to, to talk, to, you know, talk Sports. trash to each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then my youngest Canyon is a senior in high school and so we are um, immersed in the college application process. So um, hopefully in the near, in the coming months, we'll know where he's going to be going next year. Oh, that's awesome. So let's have a little fun with this. So how about three words that describe Pam? <laughs> um, okay. So if I'm describing myself, yeah. which may not be how others would, um, I would say first and foremost, optimistic. You know, I think, I think I have always had an optimistic attitude. Um, the second word I would use, and whether you take this positively or negatively, I would say energetic and maybe to a fault. Why would anybody take that? Why would, <laughs> well, cause you're too energetic. You yeah, never stop. You know, like let's keep going. My husband could tell you stories about that. Um, but I would say energetic. Um, I think my attitude has always been 
I have so many things I want to do. I got to just figure out how to get everything that I want to do into that day. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what kind of drives me. Um, And the third word, I guess I would say balanced. I would say balanced. I would say I, you know, I, I think, you know, like I think I could have been a judge because I think I, I tend to look at both sides. I try to, um, I try to find compromises. I think that has, that, that is probably a characteristic that guided me in my law practice um, and into the type of law that I went into. Um, I was not a litigator. I was a, I was a deal maker. I was a, a real estate, you know, a contract negotiator. So I would say energetic, optimistic, and balanced. Oh my God, I love it. So you talked a little bit. Let's talk about balance. Let's let's stay on that balance thing. What do you do to relax? I mean, you have a very demanding job. So what do you do to relax? I would say in general, being outside is my way to relax. And that can take so many different forms depending on what's going on. Um, during COVID, I took up golf. So now I love being out on the golf course. You're probably one the heck first of a time. golfer. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm hacking I mean, you're along. You're an athlete, but so I'm sure you're good. I am very addicted, as you would <laughs> expect a competitive person to be. Um, I love um, taking a swim in the ocean. We live in walking distance of the beach, so I, we love to go for morning swims in the summer when the water's super flat and clear. I love to cycle, get on my bike and go. Um, so I would say being outside, even if it's a, a morning or evening walk. So- you know, I love being outside. Awesome. That's probably the way I relax the most. And then, of course, when the weather's bad, you're Netflix binging. I do that too. <laughs> oh, who does it? Who does it? So 25 years at FPL, right? Coming on, yes. Coming on almost 25 yes. years, which is absolutely amazing. How? What's your story? How did you end up at FPL? Well, I guess um, to start, I would have to say how I came to Palm Beach County first. And, um, you know, when I graduated from UNC... I decided I really was a Florida girl and I knew I wanted to go to law school because when I was playing uh, college tennis, one of the tournaments out in Utah, we would get housed with different families and the family I got housed with, the father was a a sports lawyer. And I said, that's it. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a sports lawyer. So I knew I needed to go to law school. So when I was graduating from UNC, I felt like, you know what? I'm really a Florida girl. I'm going to go back to Florida. And so I chose FSU because I thought it would be really cool to be in the state capital. I had spent no time in Tallahassee, and I thought to be where the government is, the legislature, the Florida Supreme Court, um, just the center of government would be something that I had never been exposed to. And it was exactly that. It was a, I got to work on political campaigns. I interned for a first district court of, of appeal judge. I got to witness Supreme Court arguments. So... It was definitely all that. And um, so as, as I traversed interviewing and things like that, um, I, I found a law firm here in, in, in Palm Beach County, Gunster, that was recruiting me. And I realized what a nice lifestyle it could be to move to Palm Beach County rather than go to New York or Chicago and make peanuts working for a major sports organization like an IMG or ProServe. So, um, the Gunster firm had a, had a golf course practice and I thought that was kind of (laughs) sporty. So, um, so they recruited me to come work for them. And so that's how I got to Palm Beach County. I remember with some girlfriends over the summer coming to a little 
festival in 1985 called Sunfest. Oh, I think I've heard of Sunfest before. <laughs> it was back then. It was one stage, and the uh, jazz band Spyro Gyra was playing. And as we we parked on Palm Beach, and as we're walking across the bridge, I looked at the what is now be a very small downtown compared to now, and I said, "I'm going to work there. That's where I'm going to look for a job." And so that's really what I did. I started at Gunster in Phillips Point. And um, it was at a time in the late 80s, anyone who was here to remember, um, you know, the economy kind of tanked and the golf course practice at Gunster had split off after a few weeks that I was there. So, um, so things kind of shifted. And so I ended up shifting over to a midsize from Jones and Foster. And um, they had a really robust local government practice. And so I spent a lot of my time um, working as an associate representing towns like the town of Palm Beach, the village of Tequesta. Um, my hometown of Lighthouse Point hired me. So um, it was a different kind of practice for a young lawyer, but it really gave me the opportunity to think on my feet. I wasn't just sitting behind a desk doing research. I had to be out in front. And when you're asked questions, you nine times out of 10 aren't going to know the answer right off the bat. And you have to guide a council and you have to manage a meeting. So I felt that was very, a very unique experience for a young lawyer. And, um, but I also knew at that point that I didn't think I wanted to spend my whole career as a private in a, in private practice. Okay. I just didn't wake up every day, you know, thinking that's what I wanted to do. So I, um, I went in one day and I quit and, um, the, the head partner said, well, where are you going? And I said, I don't know. I'm going to take time off. And he's like, you can't do that. <laughs> and I had saved up enough money to live for a year. And I headed out to Colorado and I rode my bike all over the place. And I went up to Mount Rainier and did some mountain climbs around Mount Rainier and rode my bicycle through Alaska. And um, while I was doing that, I had different friends join me, but I realized I actually wanted to be a lawyer. I just needed to do it in a different way. So I came back home and uh, my father was very concerned I was not going to be getting a job. <laughs> but um, and I turned down a couple of private firm offers, but I I ended up going to the city of West Palm Beach and um, with the help of the former firm I had been with, they were they were very loyal to me and they put in a good word for me, which I will always be indebted to them for. But um, I went to work for Nancy Graham in the 90s, Mayor Nancy Graham, who was a great um, visionary. And, you know, I just ate up everything that I did. I was a fifth-year lawyer at the time, and she had a vision for transforming downtown. And the area that we now know as Rosemary Square was all, had been acquired by two gentlemen named David Palladino and Henry Rolfs. Um, but it had been sitting riddled with legal problems because the economy had changed and, the, you know, kind of the structure that they were operating under kind of collapsed. Mm -hmm. And so um, I remember sitting down with a pile of papers to figure out who owned what and seeing the roadmap that it wasn't going to be as hard to assemble that property as it seemed if the city could use their powers to do so, which today those powers have changed, by the way, the laws of eminent domain. But we um, we embarked on um, it was it was a textbook law school experience for me, learning so many aspects of real estate development at that point in my career and getting to um, rub elbows with the best lawyers all over town. It could not have been a better time 
and a better experience for for someone in my position. So um, I was able to work alongside people like Bob Sanders and the city attorney, Pat Brown and Nancy Graham and big lawyers from all over town to assemble that property and then put it out for bid. And as everyone knows, Related and, and Ken Himmel's team came in and put a fabulous project together. I was able to negotiate with the county on the convention center deal. And we all knew the hotel was the linchpin to ultimately pull all the pieces together, which I was glad to see happen 20 or 25 years later. <laughs> um, it's crazy how long it takes to happen, right? It was, oh, it gosh. was, but, um, but it was, there were so many other projects that we worked on in addition to Rosemary square, which we called city place back then that it was very fun to wake up every morning and know that everybody cared what you were doing because it was impacting the quality of life for everybody and transforming downtown West Palm beach was just that. And that was so, just the beginning. Like, yes, think about that. It was that. just the beginning of yeah. all the projects, you know, the mm -hmm. old bus station I got to work on and converting that, which is, you know, down, you know, which is right there now where pistaches and, um, um, you know, the old baseball stadium and that whole project and all of the workforce housing projects that we worked on and working with the DDA on Clematis street. And, um, really it could go on and on the number of projects that that team worked on. And I think the biggest learning for me as a young lawyer or career person is what I got most out of Nancy Graham's tenure was we worked as a team and we worked on how to get to yes, not just say no. That doesn't mean you just let everything come through the door, but we worked on how to get to yes. And you can you can get a long way when you have, when, when you empower your team to think that way. And that's, that was the beauty of Nancy Graham. It sounds like you really enjoyed doing that. Oh, I did. So how did FPL kind of like pry you away from that? Well, I met my husband while I was there and, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, when you work for the government, you work very hard. And we were having all night meetings all the time with all the development going on. Our, our commission meetings will last till two or 3 a.m., um, they were multiple times a week with all the different boards that I was serving as their advisor to. So I realized that as I was starting my family that it might be time for, for a change. And so I started looking around and I still knew private practice wasn't going to be the path for me. And a friend suggested, hey, you should apply at FPL. And I knew nothing about FPL. I knew nothing, really anything other than I paid them my power bill every month. And I didn't even know where their offices were. And when I came up for an interview, I can't explain it, but when I walked into their offices, I'm like, this is it. This is exactly where I want to work. And I was fortunate enough to be offered a job in the law department. And um, when I started there in February of 1999, there were 18 lawyers in-house. And um, today there's over 100. My goodness. Give you a sense of how much our company has grown but also the model of bringing the work in house and not using as many outside firms. But um, so I just thought I was going to be a line attorney working on day to day real estate matters. And that is just not how it went because <laughs> we were, um, you know, really starting to emerge as a world leader in energy. And it wasn't just FPL as the local utility here in Florida. It was also our unregulated business, which is now next air energy resources. So um, I worked on a lot of real estate for a lot of wind and solar development outside of Florida. So I was doing a lot of that, but also, um, in Florida, FPL was starting to, um, 
pivot and culturally change where we were working really hard. You know, as a regulated utility, you can sit back and you can just say, hey, it costs us this much. Regulators got to cover our costs and, you know, our bills go up, but we just recover it. But the culture at FPL is very different. We are not satisfied with that. We work very hard to figure out how to keep our customer costs lower. And if we can sometimes take risks, but do things to reduce our customer costs at the same time, in, you know, increasing the reliability of power and making it cleaner, um, that is why I think over the last 20 years, we have become really the national leader with, um, in energy. So we're going to get to talk a little bit about that. So let's talk about your role. What what exactly is your role? So you're vice president of external affairs and economic development. So tell me about that role. So in the law department, I was also, because of my local government experience, I was the go-to lawyer for our external affairs team, which does everything local government. You know, any, you know, they are always the lead on any kind of permitting and zoning at the local level, any contracts, franchises. So, um, so I had a lot of exposure. And so, um, in 2008, when the role became available, I was fortunate enough to be asked to come out of the law department and become an officer of the company. And it was exciting for, for all of us. I was the first woman in the role. And, um, and it really was, uh, when you look back, a very obvious next step to put all the pieces together that I had put together in my 11-year career at that point. So, I'm sorry. No, it would have been 20-year 20, 20 career at that point. Okay. And um, so... When I came into external affairs, I had maybe 23 people on my team, and they are the, the team that is positioned in our communities throughout the state where we serve to be that point of contact, to be the first and best source of information for our local stakeholders, our local elected officials, and to navigate through local processes and then to help our stakeholders navigate through our processes because we're such a big company. Mm -hmm. um, we had a couple people at the time that – um, did community relations. And when I took over the team, I didn't even know what community relations was. Um, but that has grown, I think, um, into really helping to grow our brand. So what I immediately saw was as a company, we were not leveraging our best resource, which was our people. And so we created our Power to Care program, which um, really came about organically because everyone I talked to was spending time on the weekends, volunteering their time. Yeah. We said, why are we not, why are we not doing this as a company? And so I had full support of our leadership and we created power to care and we created the green shirt that now yeah. you see all see over it town. Everywhere. Yeah, every event you go to there, <laughs> and they're out there volunteering. We create events, you know, partnering with our community partners so that our our 15,000 employees can get out there and, and give back to the community in, in a way that brings us together. We bring our families out there. We get to, we get to you know, work alongside our colleagues in a, in a non-work environment, people that you might not otherwise know, people that you might get to know in a different way. And, um, and then we create incentives. If you log a certain number of hours under our Dollars for Doers program, we write a check to your favorite charity. And a lot of people don't know about that. I'm, yeah, that that is such a great program. You know, it feels really good. You know, at the end of the year, after I've logged my hours, they send me these little uh, we online. We get our little uh, credits, if you will, and then you just you just go online and you say, "This is where I want it to go," and you know, and it comes it comes in your name personally, so people that the charity knows that you it came from you, mm -hmm. and so um, it's been a hugely successful program with um, with our employees. 
And so things like that, we, um, we started implementing. So our community engagement program has been something that I've been super proud of our I pledge campaign every year where, um, we, we raise, you know, over $4 million every year to give back to charities all over the state. And, um, and then we do things in the community, like our, our classroom makeover grants, where we give $50,000 and we make over a classroom and, you know, put in STEM tools and technology because that's what kids need to be learning today. So we have a, a whole host of, uh, of community engagement opportunities that we take advantage of. And, and then our, our showcase is right here in Palm Beach County, the Manatee Lagoon. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which was super fun to, um, you know, to really create, make that come to life and decide how we wanted to showcase the manatees and how important they are to our local environment. And then how FPL coexists with the environment there and how our clean, warm water that goes into the intercoastal is actually a positive for the manatees. And so, um, so the space we've created there is open to the public for free. We get 200,000 visitors a year. Oh yeah. And, um, and I just happened to be on their board, the friends of Manatee Lagoon, Lagoon right. with you. So, so you can, you can, so I know a little bit about me. it. I know <laughs> a little right. bit. So that's a little bit of our community engagement. And then, um, in 2011, I also, um, created our economic development team. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. I was going to ask you some questions on that later, but you know, that's, that's another area that FPL is really making waves and people don't really realize that, you know, and of course it's vital to FPL. Economic development is vital to FPL, but it's also vital to the communities in which you serve. So tell us a little bit more about that and, and how, what, what is FPL's role in economic development? Well, you know, the way it came about was uh, for those that remember the great recession, you know, it was the first time in my lifetime that people were leaving Florida property values were going down and people were out of jobs. I think we lost a million jobs, primarily in the construction industry during that time. And, you know, Florida had not really developed big incentives for economic development because Florida has always been a draw. And it could have been retirees predominantly in the past, um, but there weren't a lot of incentives. And so um, we created some discounts on your electric bill. If you were a business that moved to Florida and brought a certain number of jobs, or if you were using a certain amount of power, or if you were expanding your existing business and creating some additional jobs. Now, that isn't always necessarily going to be the critical component, but when you talk to Kelly Smallridge or other economic developers, they will tell you power costs are a big, are one of the, one of the criteria that they're looking at. So we thought it was our way of signaling to businesses that Florida was a good place to come to. But it wasn't just those discount rates. We wanted to really bring it to the community level. So we partnered with our local economic development partners like Kelly Smallridge and the other economic development organizations around the state. And we invested in uh, these tools online that were open to site selectors from all over the world that really put all the data in one spot that they could come and, and look at any place in Florida, not just the territory we serve, but okay, all of Florida and, and identify demographics. Like, you know, what are the businesses in this community? What are property costs? Where are the schools? You know, there's all sorts of information there so that it really kind of gave Florida an edge because these site selectors could really get a feel for what these communities were look like. So we felt like it really put Florida on the map. And back then we partnered a lot with enterprise Florida I know if Enterprise Florida is going away, but it um, but it was it was a big partner when we first launched. And as economic development comes and goes in the state, we've been able to ramp up and really leverage our vendor relationships 
you know, we have vendors from all over the world to get them to look at Florida and bring new kinds of jobs, new manufacturing. Um, so that is why we've been able to, you know, participate and help grow, like you said, more than 27,000 jobs, more than 280 companies at this point that we've brought to Florida, not necessarily just in our service territory, but, you know, when you, that the 27,000 is just direct jobs. The indirect jobs are vastly more than that. And that just really impacts the economy to the tune of billions of dollars. Billions. And so that is, that is the role that we played that, you know, we didn't want to just um, limit it to providing electric, although that's our first and biggest responsibility is to work with all of our new customers to get them served and to, to work with them as partners and to navigate through our company to do that as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. But also just to be a community partner, our CEO will talk to that CEO and tell them why Florida is a great place to live. We'll work with them on looking at schools or can we help, you know, can we leverage our relationships to help with something that they need? So really we tried to bring everything that we had to the table so that we could work with companies in their unique ways to encourage them to, to look at Florida. Let's talk about hurricanes. We are, we're towards the end of hurricane season here, knock on wood. Um, I think we fared pretty good as a state so far. So far, knock on wood. So out. far, so far. <laughs> um, FPL has a huge role in, in preparedness and recovery. So can you walk us through FPL's role and what that process is like? Because I know it is, it's an enormous undertaking. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, I think uh, first and foremost, one of the things I'm most proud of as our company is that we see ourselves as first responders before anything else. And so when a storm is headed our way is when you see uh, the real heroes of our company. And, you know, we, um, uh, we, we work what, under what we call the incident command system. It's, a, it's a, like a military structure of command and everyone has a role. And when you say everyone, everyone top to bottom in the company's got a role. Every Everybody's on call yes. when a hurricane comes yes. in. And sometimes your role might be business as usual because we've got to keep the business running. Yep. But um, on the FPL side, we all go into our storm role. And so keep in mind that we practice this every year. We go through a dry run that if you walked into our building, you would think there was a real hurricane coming because you see emails, you see meetings going on. Um, we have a Cat 5 uh, command center on 45th Street where um, we gather and that's the center of our logistics and our communications. And so I oversee a team of about 100 employees who have been trained to go occupy all the emergency operations centers in all the impacted counties. And we have over, you know, we have over, I think, 47 of them if they were all activated at one time, which in Irma they, they were. <laughs> so we've got to have not just one person, but we have to have three people trained for each EOC because those, those are all open when they're activated 24 seven. And so you got to have people to take shifts. So there's a lot of logistics involved in that, but the bigger logistics is how to get the thousands of crew positioned as, as um, expeditiously and as efficiently as possible so that they are as close to the, where the storm is going to be as possible at the same time out of harm's way. So that when the winds pass to a level that they can begin restoring, they're there. And so, for example, with Ian, I think, um, don't hold me to it, but I think we had 18,000 crew working on that storm. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of things we've done over the years to really improve how we address storms. 
Uh, and when you look at the metrics and you look at the data, you can see how much improvement we made. So, um, for example, we um, had a storm secure plan years ago where we became much more aggressive with vegetation because vegetation causes a lot of outages. And so we became much more aggressive with tree trimming and also pole inspections. So we are uh, we, we're, we're taking out the old wooden poles and we are putting in much higher wind rated steel concrete poles. And we have completely changed out our transmission grid. It is all concrete now. We've done that over the last 15 years. And so when you look at data from like Hurricane Wilma in 2005 to Hurricane Irma, um, we had zero transmission poles out um, in Irma compared to to Wilma. So huge differences. And now we're we're doing that in neighborhoods where we are systematically undergrounding um, what we call the laterals that go into the neighborhoods. And we see, I see it in neighborhoods all throughout Palm Beach North. And you can't get that done in one day because yeah. it's a massive undertaking. Mm-hmm. The PSC has given us approval on our plan to, you know, methodically move through and underground these lines. It doesn't, you know, and so hopefully a lot of poles will go away. We've, you know, the other utilities have to also do it, but it will help us improve reliability with, with the increase in the amount of storms that we're seeing and the severity of the storms. Um, undergrounding doesn't solve every problem. You know, you saw with Ian, there was such a storm surge that our transformers get blown out. So, so undergrounding doesn't solve every problem, but overall it greatly improves reliability. So, um, those are some of the investments that we've made over time. You know, uh, the bigger transmission poles are all steel concrete, the undergrounding, the tree trimming and the inspections. So those are ways. And then, and then the preparation. So when a storm is coming, say 96 hours out, we all start having, you know, a chain of command and calls to get, make sure we're in place Mm -hmm. and communications with the local emergency management divisions is very important and getting the crews in place. And then as soon as that storm passes, our crews are out. We set up staging sites that are like mini cities in critical areas where we've already negotiated partnership agreements with local areas where we can stage, um, you know, thousands of crew. Yeah. And I don't know if people are listening to this, but I know, you know, the South Florida fairgrounds. I remember, I remember driving by there one day and there was a storm way out there and you Mm -hmm. see nothing but FPL trucks lined up. Yeah. It's insane. Perfectly parked one right behind the other. I mean, it it was like you said, it looked like a military. It it looks like it's the military out there. And our employees, so impressive. Our employees are there serving meals, Mm -hmm or, you know, uh, overseeing the site or directing traffic. And so, you know, you'll have people from our law department, you know, uh, serving meals. So that's, what's really cool about it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so that's how we all come together and you don't sleep much. I can only imagine. Yeah. And, um, and it is a 24 seven operation. So we have crews that work their 16 hours. They come back, they go to sleep for eight hours. And then there's other crews that go out during the night. So, you might always see trucks at the staging site, but that's because they just got off their 16 hour work day and the next shift is going out. And sometimes they're sleeping in cots, right? Like sometimes, or we if have you can't find trucks. hotels. Yes. Yeah. Well, we, we have sleeper trucks and we have cots. We also use hotel. We utilize anything that works and yeah. depending where you are around the state, some things work better than others, but um, we've gotten very creative on how to um, get our crews to sleep, good meals, good showers yeah. and good sleep. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit. Let's change it up a little bit. Talk a little bit about uh, solar. I talked a little bit. I, I mentioned it in the intro. 
FPL set a huge goal of installing over 30 million solar panels by 2030. Why is that so important? Well, you know, actually part of my career journey is I led our FPL project development for five years. Mm -hmm. And um, during that time there, um, solar costs began to come down. And, you know, our, our method is we are always looking for the generation that is the most cost effective for our customers overall. And the most cost effective is solar. And, you know, the main reason for that is because fuel is so, the cost of fuel is so volatile. When you're on solar, you've eliminated that cost altogether. Yep. And so we saw that in 2022, natural gas went through the roof. Nobody could have predicted it. And, you know, just in 2022 alone with the solar that we've already built, we saved our customers $375 million in what they otherwise would have spent. So we launched our 30 by 30 because as we began growing our solar portfolio, um, we knew that, that, that setting those targets would, would help settle and stabilize and reduce overall the cost to our customers for their electricity. And so I'm really happy to say that we're so far ahead of schedule. So we've been putting that, uh, you know, on steroids and we already have 66 projects in the ground. And when I say a project, a 75 megawatt solar project is typically located on three or 400 acres of land, sometimes more if you need more offsets. So, but um, it's about 330,000 solar panels per project to give you a sense of scale. And so we have 66 projects in the ground operating, providing power today. Um, and we're, we're ahead of schedule. We are going to have 30 million solar power panels in the ground by the end of 2025. So in about two years, we will be at that target. But, you know, that was just really the tip of the iceberg because, you know, a lot of other companies were coming out with their net zero initiatives and how they were going to get to net zero. And as a company, as, a, as an enterprise, Next Era Energy, you know, is, is the leader in wind and solar energy throughout the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we wanted to find a way to get to real zero where we weren't just offsetting, but that we actually weren't generating any emissions. And so that is the commitment that we made truly because it made the most economic sense for our customers. And it is a, a hedge on fuel. Yeah. And so we're doing that. There's three major ways we're doing that. Um, number one, with our solar plan. So we will continue to, to build more solar here in Florida. Um, but that's coupled with batteries. And we have several batteries working for us because that paired with solar allows those solar panels to generate solar all day long and then continues to generate power in the night by using the batteries. Where are these batteries? Like for the average person that doesn't know, I mean, we're not talking about your cell phone battery here. Like no, no. What, what kind of, what are these batteries like? Talk. So if you really want to see a cool one, um, at the time we built it two years ago, the world's largest battery is over in Manatee County at our Manatee plant. And how big is this thing? And it is, um, it's on 40 acres. <laughs> And it's the equivalent of a hundred million cell phone batteries. That's unbelievable. And so it's quite something. And so it's connected to our solar plant there. We have different pilots of batteries around the state in different places of all different sizes that we're testing and piloting on how to optimize them. Um, so, you know, so we, we see that that component is a really big part of optimizing the solar that we generate. But, you know, we still have natural gas plants around the state. So the question is, how do you get to the ultimate real zero? And that's where um, hydrogen comes in. And so um, at our Okeechobee Clean Energy Center, which is a natural gas plant, we've also paired that 
with solar and an electrolyzer that creates hydrogen. And we are piloting a hydrogen project where that hydrogen um, will feed into the natural gas plant and reduce emissions. So generating the hydrogen is clean and then, you know, feeding it into the power plant reduces emissions as well. So, and we hope that that pilot will yield results that we can better utilize and leverage hydrogen as part of our overall uh, real zero plan. All at the same time, uh, making an economic, making economic sense for our customers. Amazing. Amazing. So electric vehicles, I'm seeing more and more electric vehicles every day. Yes, you are. I'm like this close. I'm tempted to buying an electric vehicle. So what's FPL strategy for supporting the growing adoption of, of electric vehicles? Well, you're right. There are more electric vehicles on the road. In fact, in Florida, we are the second largest user of electric vehicles. I think right now there's almost 230,000 electric vehicles in Florida. See, that's I didn't know that's that. Okay. But we expect, um, we expect that to grow by 2030. We expect half the vehicles in Florida will be electric. Wow. So that is a pretty big forecast. And the way that's going to happen, though, is if the infrastructure is there to support it. And so we've been trying to do our part really in three ways. Number one, we rolled out our FPL Evolution public parking, uh, public charging program. Mm -hmm. And we have been installing public chargers all over the state, along with an app that tells you where they all are. And it's, you know, it's usable by any electric vehicle. And so... Um, that is a program that is ongoing to really help encourage um, comfort because the biggest concern everyone has is, well, what if I run out of charge? Mm -hmm. And so these are fast charging superchargers. And any car could, I mean, a Tesla, yes, any, any car could yes. Okay. So we have that program. And then just recently we launched the FPL Evolution Home Program. And because we know that 80% of EV users really when they're charging is at night when they're home. Typically, their day use is just to work and back, and you can usually get back and forth on a charge easily. So the FPL Evolution Home Program is we come and install the charger for free, and then you pay a low flat fee a month, and all your nighttime and peak time charging is free. So it's a very economical thing to do, and we're even expanding that down the road so that you can you know have two cars on it. So we're working on that. Um, and then the third- Is that in homes now? The, the FPL home is just being launched. It's just being launched. Yes, okay. Just being launched. And then the third piece of that is our FPL evolution fleet where um, we're working with companies who have fleets to uh, sort of act as an advisor because we're in the process of converting our fleet. We've committed to having 50% of our fleet electric by 2030. So we are serving as advisors to help them like how much charging do you need? What kind of trucks do you need? How can you do this? What's, you know, based on your, use of your fleet, what do you need? And so we're working with the fleets, you know, of, of companies to also help them convert their fleets. It's amazing. So we think there's, we, we think there's a lot coming for, for EVs. That's exciting. It's exciting. So we are almost out of time, but I, I want to end this with a couple questions about you, if that's okay, bring it sure. back to Pam a little bit. You have had such an accomplished career. You know, we talked a little bit about that. You've been a part of really shaping our state. Um, and that's got to feel amazing. What, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I'd have to say first and foremost that I was a good mom and wife. <laughs> so I'll say that first. But, you know, I really think that I would like my legacy to be at Next Air Energy as someone who in my own small way contributed to a collaborative culture. 
you know, because of my deep roots in team sports, um, I have always, I've been brought up to believe that, you know, uh, it's a team effort and no one person is responsible for success. And so I, I do feel like we have a culture of, of a team effort and, and that's why we've been successful in the past. And so if I can be part of that legacy, I would be really proud of that. And I'd like to say that for the community too. This is an amazing Palm Beach County. I just have been so blessed to have been part of this community as we've grown up. And if in some small way I can be aligned with the other amazing community leaders here that have done something to help Palm Beach County grow up in a good way, I would be really proud of that. And so you can't do this forever. So, you know, what, what's next for Pam? Oh gosh. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you can ever plan your, your future that specifically, uh-huh. but I'm going to be an empty nester next year. So um, I think first and foremost, I think my husband and I adjusting to that freedom <laughs> <laughs> and what we will do with that will be very interesting. <laughs> um, and, you know, we have an amazing new leadership team at Next Air and FPL and working with them to usher in the new generation of leaders has been something that I'm really proud to be part of. And so I think continuing to do that would be really great, but also, you know, to look ahead and, and do some more traveling and improve my handicap and golf a little bit would be awesome too. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, Pam, thank you so much. This was so insightful. I'm so proud of what you know, FPL right here in our backyard is accomplishing. You guys are great partners to the community, great partners to the chamber. Um, we can't thank you and your team um, and everyone at FPL for everything. Um, I, I want to thank all the listeners too. Thank you so much for joining. I know this is really starting to take on uh, take, uh, take on, and, and really grow really, really fast. So don't forget to subscribe, rate, review the show. And we're going to definitely be back here in a couple of weeks with another great guest. So Pam, thanks again. Thanks again to all our listeners and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you.